And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation that I'm hoping helps your business grow. All right. So you found investors, you found people that want to put money they, into your business, your idea, your concept. They believe in you. They believe in what you want to do. And now you got to try to figure out what is all of this worth and how do I figure that out? So in order to help get an idea of how people are figuring this out, I have brought in an expert. Now, before I introduce that expert, I want to let you know that today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank. SVB has been supporting innovative founders, companies, and investors with targeted financial services and expertise for over 35 years. Silicon Valley Bank is built for what's next. Learn more at svb.com. There is a link in the show notes where you can learn all about them. Now, it just happens to be my guest today happens to be from Silicon Valley Bank. Imagine that. With us today, I've got Ryan Larson, who's a VP over at SVB. Say that a bunch of times really fast when you introduce, you say hi, Ryan. But yeah, let's just do that. Ryan, welcome to Startup Hustle. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to, well, first off, thank you for the support that SVB is given Startup Hustle. We appreciate that both here on the podcast and on our new web series, which you can find live on YouTube. And you can confirm for yourself that I do, in fact, have a face made for radio. Um, <laughs> so, Ryan, give us a little background about yourself and also about SVB and what Silicon Valley Bank does for startups. And, you know, that's obviously a big part of investment and valuations and money coming in. You guys have such a big part in that in the world of startups. Let's hear more about it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, and uh, thank you for uh, letting us be a part of the startup hustle. We really love what you guys are doing. And this is helpful information to that ecosystem. Um, as far as myself, I've actually been at SVB for about eight years now. I've bounced around from our lending group, um, covered multiple different regions, and now I'm focused on Colorado and the Midwest and um, preaching the gospel of SVB and helping startup communities flourish. Um, as far as the bank goes, you know, we've got an early stage focus, which is how we cut our teeth. Um, and in our 35-year history, have really just grown kind of uh, with our businesses so that we can take a founder from idea inception and opening bank accounts all the way through IPO. So, and I know this is, has quotes around it, but you, you, the bank, Silicon Valley Bank does roughly 50% of the series A stuff for startups. That's, that's, that's in the ballpark of being accurate, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we pride ourselves on trying to uh, find companies uh, early in their growth stage and help them as they're trying to bring in that institutional capital. 
And, and that's and and that's why I think you're perfect for today's episode because all these companies, you know, the earlier you get, the wilder the fluctuations and the bigger the guesswork becomes with establishing an investment valuation. You know, before we get into some of the talking points we have today, like what are the common trends that that you see? early stage companies doing to establish a valuation and negotiate that with their investors? Yeah, I think some of the interesting trends that we're seeing here are valuations are getting established at a higher and higher mark, um, simply because there's so much competition from a capital perspective. And as that happens, uh, the valuation gets pushed up. And so it's uh, important for founders to make sure that they're keeping in mind that they are getting a good valuation for their company, but they're comparing themselves to peers um, and making sure that they can live with that valuation. So, <clears throat> excuse me, they can have an up round uh, the next time they're trying to bring in financing. So there's literally so, so much capital pouring into the market, even, even during a pandemic, that it's become a seller's market? Yeah, we're seeing um, outside capital uh, come in in Q4 and Q1 at a really rapid pace. Um, and that's everywhere. I think as we've seen success, particularly in the tech space, funds have gotten bigger and bigger and there are more checks to be deployed and uh, more dollars out there to hopefully fund the next great thing. Man, that's crazy that, yeah. So, it, 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 and and, we're, and for those of you watching the live stream, we're kind of smiling and nodding our heads and yeah, that is awesome. So. Uh, and, you know, as we get into that, so how, how does uh, the one thing that really ha has impressed me when it can't when it came to everything I've learned about Silicon Valley Bank is I think one of the first times I ever talked to you, you said, Matt, you know, we look at companies a, a different than a bank does. Let's talk about that real quick, because I think that's important because banking is a real headache for startups, especially ones. I, I think I was complaining to you about the fact that uh, this was uh, months ago, but that I that I was having issues with traditional banks because my company didn't fit in any. We had grown so quickly and were so new. We were less than two years old, and also and had five or six million dollars a year in revenue. They didn't even know what slot to put us in. They're like, "Wait a minute, you have two hundred employees and you're not two years old, but you don't check this box, so we can't work with you." Like, and you guys are a little different than that. Yeah, I, uh, you know, $5 million in revenue two years in is great. Um, so <laughs> um, I think one of the ways SBB kind of approaches our relationship with our companies is thinking about their forward motion versus looking back at their historicals, which is a typical kind of banking transactional view. Um, so really, we're trying to think about where's this business today? Where do they want to be in the near term and long term? And are they trying to become an, or aspirational to be a high growth venture backed company? And with that, you know, is there enterprise value that can be driven versus historical cash flow statements? Um, and so really thinking about where the company's projecting to grow and, and how they're trying to get there is, is where we try to align ourselves and be helpful. Yeah. And that, I mean, when it comes to establishing, you know, a, an investment valuation, it, it, uh, it is all built around future hope and dreams and promise. And that's also where many startup founders get a little overzealous with, you know, and we're, we're talking about it being a seller's market. And, you know, so once for those of you listening, you know, this show's conversational, we're not able to tell you how much your startup's worth. 
It's just we that that's between you and your investors. Now we can we can give you our own firsthand experience. We can give you advice and have conversation around some of the stuff that's going on in the market and common in common things that are going on now in my own experience and the investments that we've made through full scale i i've seen a lot of people that are asking for sky high valuations and they don't really have a whole lot uh to substantiate the why you know like they're they're they've got a a, a pitch deck and a business plan and a four million dollar ask and you know now now i'm not saying that that's always a lot a, a, a no go it depends on who it is but these are often times like i'm like where did you come up with this number oh well that's just what we think the company's worth mm. yeah that's a tough sell um i think having metrics uh, or reasoning behind where you think your valuation is key, not only for yourself to be able to seem convincing to the investors that you're trying to bring into your cap table, um, but also to make sure that you have a roadmap for yourself, your company, and your soon to be you know, partners or board members or whomever other parties involved on how you're gonna get to the next valuation. So if you're an unsubstantiated $4 million valuation and you bring in another million bucks, are you gonna even be able to hurdle that $5 million that you're at now um, if you don't have traction or there's not reasoning behind where you're, you're pinning that $4 million to? Yeah, and you know, the, I mean, part of, part of that whole thing is, well, revenue. So sales cures ales as, as people that sell stuff like to, like to say. And now once revenue is established, you have a much easier time beginning to create a valuation. Unless you're watching the show Silicon Valley, um, where <laughs> I think Russ Hanneman's advice is to not have revenue because then you will have to establish a valuation. And why would we want to do that? Um, and that's kind of, you know, but that that's, you know, once once you begin to for, have some revenue, and I think some of the other ways when it comes to establishing valuations that have, that have been pretty common is you're looking at things like TAM, your total addressable market. How big is your opportunity? And then couple that with how likely are you to actually pull it off? You have other risk factors and your founding team. And, you know, after recording over 500 of these episodes, and asking many, many investors, I said, do you bet on the jockey or do you bet on the horse? The unanimous choice still to this day is I bet on the jockey. So do you see that being the trend when it, now if you are a, a well, a well-known founder and you've had success and you have a great team, uh, you might get a huge valuation with your business plan and your pitch deck one in each hand. Yeah, I think uh, the the jockey uh, correlation is for sure true. You know, you hear particularly at the early stage, it's people, 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 product, people, and that's what they're investing in. Um, as far as you know, what it takes to kind of begin that valuation conversation, uh, revenue obviously is one of the best benchmarks, particularly at the early stage. The TAM, where you're at competitively. Have you done it before, right? That track record is going to kind of de-risk uh, your profile in the view of an investor. And then how quickly are you growing and how efficiently are you getting that growth, right? What's that input versus output metric looking like? And are you able to scale that? Um, because at the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the small number amount, you know, it's easy to be looking like you're growing 300% over, you know, a $10,000 baseline. 
Um, it's can you continue that trajectory up to that $10 million, you know, ARR mark uh, and, and warrant a true large round coming in? Yeah, and that's something that that Matt Watson and I were talking about in our in our 52 part series about how to start a tech company, which, by the way, Silicon Valley Bank has sponsored some of those, too. So thank you. But, um, you know, like the the it's often it, well, founders and people raising capital often shape the facts around really small sample sizes. And, and those things don't usually hold up in diligence. You know, they say, okay, well, the average cost of acquisition for a, a client or customer is $50. You say, okay, how big is that sample size? It's 10. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, where are we going to be at when we need to get to 10,000 and some of that? So now one of the things, and I mentioned having some frustration with, and I'm using air quotes here, traditional banks. So a traditional bank, is like the bank that's right around the corner from your house. It's the bank that has been giving loans to businesses prior to tech, I want to say, because it's hard for tech companies to have assets that, that a bank sees as tangible or something that they can tally up. And, you know, that's, and that's where, like, that's why I said, that's what I think where Silicon Valley bank is a little bit different because, Oh, I, I mean, I've known people that prior to a really lucrative exit couldn't get a bank loan uh, because they didn't have any assets. And, and traditionally, banks will look at assets that's like trucks, real estate, product, you know, thing, equipment, just stuff like that. And those aren't really those aren't things that that tech companies are, are usually. Well, I don't have a fleet of trucks. I do own 200 laptops, but they're 13 time zones away. So when it comes to valuation based on assets, how, 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 is, how do investors or banks look at tech companies differently because of the, the lack thereof? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, from a banking perspective, you know, there's the traditional You've got something on your balance sheet like a hard asset as you mentioned or you've got some type of cash flow that you can uh, look at for future periods and back into where you think the company's worth is from that perspective uh, there's another way to look at that which would be from you know how are they driving their enterprise value and that really goes again back to that top line which is how quickly are you growing and how quickly can you capture a market to scale and become a sustainable business uh, and that's really i think where we as a bank try to align ourselves to investors because they're looking again forward at what does this growth look like today? And while yes, the company might be burning through cash and really their assets are their people and some IP, um, what we've got going on in the future is their ability to kind of recreate a market. Yeah, and that income and revenue is tricky as well because if you haven't had it for years, and that was my problem with the, with the banks that we had talked about, and this was and and hey, look, I'm not I'm not not advocating for your local bank. I'm just saying that as a tech company, and I've actually done calls with local bank CEOs and different people because they want our business, and they but in order to they realize that they're not getting tech accounts. And I and I'll tell them I'm saying because you're not looking at these businesses the right way. You're not looking at at their future value, their future position in the market, and a po and their possible acquisition price 
down the road, you're looking at their cash flow or really their profitability. And it's, I mean, the kind of a running joke in software that you don't make a profit for a while is, is, is the thing. So, you know, I mean, so looking at a business's gross income is a challenging way to create a valuation based on traditional banking methods. But for modern investment and VC capital, that is, well, not necessarily gross income, really the revenue is still the centric piece of it times whatever they pick it, whatever number they, do they draw it out of a hat? Is that how we decide multiples these days? Uh, it, it can feel like it. Certainly uh, in moments in time, fundraising is frenetic and you can get really, really large valuations. Um, I like to believe that there's something in there that I don't understand. And that's why those numbers are so big. But um, yeah, I think when you're talking about, again, that, that kind of backing into a traditional gross profit or uh, net income or EBITDA number for valuation, um, I've seen companies actually in businesses, this hurting them in the first few years where, <clears throat> excuse me, they're trying to be ultra efficient and potentially bootstrap versus getting as many inputs as possible uh, from a capital perspective and really growing and capturing their market and putting themselves ahead of their peers. And I think that's one of the strategies in the venture capital world where, you know, people want to see that fast growth because you want to have first movers advantage. You want to become kind of the 800 pound gorilla in the room. Um, that's really the first thing that people are thinking of when they're talking about your space and getting that growth and getting that notoriety comes with, you know, burning through quite a bit of capital and acquiring users or, um, you know, accounts or, or however you, you look at your logos, your enterprises. Well, let's talk about first movers advantage, because if that's kind of like the pole position in many regards and like, I mean, what, what is that? I mean, in, well, in its simplest form is you're the first person to start doing something um, and, and gain notoriety from it. So you've established your brand and you're now ahead of the pack on something that's being adopted. And so that's affecting you positively from a marketing perspective, from probably an organic sales perspective. And that's basically giving you kind of the, the like you said, pole position or front of that wave where, where you're able to ride the momentum the fastest. Now you can leap. You now I, I don't think it's always about being first, though, because you might be one of like three or four companies in in a space, and there isn't a dominant leader. But you talk about the eight hundred pound gorilla, and we hear you you hear this phrase thrown out a lot. So some companies become so ultra capitalized, it's it's like having the Death Star parked outside your your planet, basically. Like it's it's an in, they can almost become an impenetrable fortress. Like when it comes to 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 fighting against them, and that's why you hear the phrase like, okay, if there's an eight hundred pound gorilla in the room, you're not going to notice much else other than that gorilla, and if that gorilla gets angry, it's going to tear some stuff up. And, you know, that, so when it comes to funding and, and we've talked about this in some other episodes, that's, that's some of the risk factor that comes in to people wanting to put money into your business. And I ran into this with Gigabook because there were other, there were other people and companies that had already had already had that advantage. So you look at some company that just got $80 million in funding and you're trying to get seed stage capital and, and investors look at that and they're like, okay, so. And well, I'm in Kansas City, so that's usually what it's like when the Royals play the Yankees. 
Like, and it really is because the Royals are this like, I don't know, man, like occasionally we win, but usually we kind of suck and we play the Yankees and they have this huge payroll and all these stars and they can get the best people. And that's what the 800 pound gorilla does. I mean, that's that, that same effect, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I think, and I, to your point, I think it's important to notice that you can have uh, a lot of businesses start at the, the same time or one start before. And it's really first movers advantage comes when you are either scalable or prove yourself to be kind of the better of the products. Um, That's kind of like self-created self first movers there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I guess, yeah, as far as the, the 800 pound gorilla to your point, there are, there are companies that can be humongous um, and ultimately have a path that's dictated for them. Um, and lose some of their ability to be nimble and agile and respond to the market and adapt their product to, you know, user feedback and become something that's truly special. And so you definitely don't want to shackle yourself. Um, but it is always nice to have uh, assets at your disposal. Yeah. And that's, you know, like I said, that's not necessarily, you don't want to deter yourself from entering the room with the gorilla you just not you need to know it's there and you'll probably notice them too so i, I think you have a really good point because there is something to be said there's a certain size that companies get to well i'll just i'll just vouch as it's as full scale has grown it it the more people and the more locations and the more departments and the more stuff it just takes it's harder to roll stuff out and and change things. Like, for example, if you were to make, I don't know, it could even be something that feels and, and sounds boring, like a general HR change. And now all of a sudden you have to have 200 meetings, you know, to get that rolled out. And like, you, next thing you know, you find yourself messing with that. And rather than like, hey, how do we do this? Or how do we do that? Or how do we adopt? And then another thing with software too, is platforms get they become big and complex and making changes to them. Well, the more users and the more revenue that's coming in, you, you, you become, you like, you become hesitant. You know, you have to go about like, you don't want to break things when you have tens of thousands or even millions of users. Now, when you have like a hundred users and sorry for those that are listening to my, to any business that you have of mine where you've subscribed when there was a hundred users, I wasn't worried about breaking it. Like I didn't want to, but I knew that the uproar would be limited. All right. So another method for, for, you know, business valuation. And one that I think is, is really, really, really common is just like, what's the, what's the market value for businesses at your stage in your segment? Yeah, I think um, that's a really useful metric. And that's also just helpful uh, in kind of preparing yourself on what you're going to need to do to be successful there. But looking at a cohort of your peers, seeing what they're being valued at and seeing where your advantages are and disadvantages are can let you, you know, have a really nice proxy of, you know, if, if you should be valued higher, if you think you're more efficient, if your product is better um, and, and all those things go into that computation. I do think, you know, making sure that you're trying to push to be kind of in the top quartile of your, um, you know, peer group is, is helpful just because you're, in a position where ideally you're being able to justify that you've got something going on that's a little bit better than the other guys. Um, and it's going to kind of bring in some confidence from uh, your approach with how you're interacting with the investors and you know other parties that you're trying to get to capitalize the business. 
Now, some of those multiples flex up and down as well, like just due to basic trends, like, you know, and, and okay, so let's go back to pre-COVID, right? And I, I literally have have like two or three different conversations with VCs and they're like, yeah, don't like, we don't like ad tech. It's boring. It's not whatever. And then COVID hits and all of a sudden everyone's online, it's virtual and like, we love ad tech. It's amazing put all our money in it, you know, and that's real. And that really is like a real thing. I mean, that's like, there are trends. And so, you know, over the last, say from 20, the beginning of 2020, the couple months before COVID until now, which is for, we're recording this in the middle of February. Um, so we got about four, 14 months in there. Like what, what trends are you seeing? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the biggest trends that we're seeing which, you know, we'll see if it plays out. It's hard to really tie up a trend yet because uh, the sample size is a little bit small, but we kind of saw this pause in funding happen um, when everybody was, you know, basically grabbing the walls and trying to stabilize themselves. But it didn't really matter necessarily because these funds had already raised capital. And so what they were doing was basically delaying funding that needed to happen at a normal cadence. And so there was this large backlog of funds or, you know, kind of inventory of deals to be done that got deployed at the back half of 2020. And so with that, we saw valuations get pushed up. We saw, you know, higher multiples happen. Um, and we really saw kind of a premium put on, on growth companies that were established. So folks felt that it was safer to bet later stage. And so while the dollar amount was um, higher than typically deployed in Q4, uh, what we saw was it was fewer checks just at a lot larger size. Um, and I think that that will, you know, probably continue through Q1 based off of the data that we're seeing. And then, you know, who knows how Q2 and Q3 will shape up. There's been a lot of new company generation, at least from the data that we're getting in our regions. Um, so there's going to have to be more seed funding and some smaller checks written as well. Yeah, and it seems like there's some different types of investment, like, you know, like SPACs and just different things like that, that, um, you know, creating new trends. And uh, I mean, I mean, there's a lot out there. Now, speaking of your investment and where to put all where to where to squirrel away all of that cash, I want to remind everyone that this episode of Startup Puzzle is brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank. SVB has been supporting innovative founders, companies and investors with targeted financial services and expertise for over 35 years. Silicon Valley Bank built for what's next svb.com there's a link in the show notes go to their site you guys have a lot of really great information on your site and um you know like a, a bank born out of the tech industry and the bay area i mean you guys have your finger on the pulse and uh i mean i'm just i i really am i'm super impressed with what you guys do there and it's gosh it's just a breath of fresh air to hear a banker talk about something that makes sense for a tech company rather than like how is a tech company going to make sense for us? You know, saying it the other way around. I'm like, well, it's not, I don't know. There's a lot of competition for banks out there. I mean, there's right up the street from my house is a pretty well-known, well, there's a street that's about six miles long and there's like 60 different banks in six miles. It's like, my God, you know? And so I, I like the fact that you guys are doing something different. So, you know, what, Overall, when, you know, the different, let, let's talk a little bit about the, the stage, right? And, you know, obviously the early you are in, in a funding cycle, 
the higher the risk factor for the investors, they're going to want a lower valuation. Like at what point are our company like, and you just, just, just your opinion. When, when is, when is the most, what, what's the best time? What's the best stage? Like where, where as a founder, do you, do you get the most valuation and, and don't say series G. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, I think certainly it depends on kind of your preference and what you like to do. And, and, you know, if you're an investor, if you really are focused on the teams um, and the people, obviously the early stage is much more fun. Um, and if you're an early stage entrepreneur and you've got this great idea, it's being able to explain that vision um, and walk somebody through, you know, what company X is going to be doing and kind of how they're going to be displacing the, the current current status quo. Um, and that's really, really fun. Um, and I think, you know, kind of the ambiguity there, um, there's a lot of excitement there and, you know, the people factor is really what makes the early stage a exciting place to be. I think, you know, to your point, as you talk about, talk about like the series G or just the later growth series, um, that's going to be much more metrics based. Um, there's going to be a lot more data points and a lot more diligence around like, you know, the technical capacity of the business and, and where the, you know, growth metrics are and some of the more, um, you know, nerdy things that I in particular like, um, but some people might be bored by. Uh, so it really, I think, just depends on on where your, uh, where your kind of uh, joys and passions are. Some people are really focused on that early stage and like to see a team come up with a great idea and work through problems and, and get creative and grow. And other folks want to see, you know, really efficient metrics and, and um, be able to walk into a data room and slice and dice a company from that perspective. N nice, informative, but non-committal answer, Ryan. Come on. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a Series A fan. And I say that because you get a company that's, that, you know, like they're post-MVP, something's working. I like it because that's like hockey stick. That's like the little, that's, I'm pretty sure if you have to draw the series behind the actual graph itself, you can, series A is like, let's hurry up and fuel up that rocket ship so we can go and grow quickly. And I'm, I'm pretty well known. I love the front and the back phases of a business. I love starting them or closing them. Like, you know, cause the, it's the middle part that, uh, Watson and I often refer to as operational brain damage. You know, because it's like the it's that you know you're in that like, hey, let's let's roll out that HR change to 200 people. Let's let's really fine tune those standard operating procedures, guys. And that's like, oh man, I mean that that's yeah. If I I'm gonna change the subject because if I talk about any of that stuff for too long, I might fall asleep on the air. Um, but yeah, so and that's like like you said, those earliest stages are they're the that's the exciting part. I don't like the really early part because I because founder it's excruciatingly like it's oh man it's like demoralizing um it's yeah i don't know just it's the it's the like kind of like feel like the guy in the movie that's like going to like his 80th job interview you know and like today i know again you know you go in and it's just i don't know it's it's i think it's a little different you get to series a and you're wanted you know, yeah. and that's, that's where people are. Hey, when people are competing as to over who's going to get to put their money in, that's a lot more fun than like, Hey, your idea sucks or your industries. Uh, it's, it's a crowded space or call us back when you have a little traction. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a tough one to hear, I'm sure. Yeah, the Series A is a special moment in time where you're not uh, bound by HR restrictions and you've kind of got enough uh, resources to go and actually see what you can do with your idea. All right. So some of the other things when we talk about establishing built, uh, you know, business valuations and some of these are, you know, we've we've discussed revenue basis and assets, which for tech companies aren't usually present. Um, and, and then you could like maybe an IP, which is completely impossible to put a value on until you're actually monetizing it, because it's like a fantasy that's like, you know, you're, you're almost a patent troll at that point. I mean, kind of are, you know, you're like, Hey, this is going to be worth a whole lot. And, you know, it's like, I don't know. I, people ask me a lot. They're like, should I patent my software? I said, Probably not. Cause you make a couple simple changes. Hey, look, but it's something new. It's something yeah. different, you know? So, uh, you know, other things too, is like, and I, in early stage companies, it's like, I don't think there is a true book valuation. I think things like book valuations are meant a little more for companies that are public or really close. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think if you're looking at book valuations without the kind of data points that you need to do the math, it's kind of a, a silly exercise or an exercise that is more opinion than science-based. So let, let's talk for a couple minutes about the things we want to avoid. All right. So obviously you want to get funded and you want to, you want lift off for the rocket ship. Now there's one particular there there's, so I, I don't even know if anyone uses this term for me, but I call it middling and middling is a really shitty place to be when it comes to raising money. That means you're not a market leader and you're not going out of business. You are literally just kind of stuck in the middle and you see this a lot. Okay. This is a company that, oftentimes was the sweetheart of the investor eye, right? And then they didn't grow as fast as, as everyone hoped. They have enough revenue to stay in business, but they're not really growing. It's, and you, know, you talk about things like having an up round or having a down round and things you want to avoid. Like you might be a no round because it's not, like I said, people, investors aren't typically saying, I want to invest in this company that once had a lot of hope and promise, but now isn't growing the way that we thought. Like, how, how often do you see that? Uh, we see that a lot. Um, that, that's actually one of the biggest dangers um, that we think through as far as, you know, and this is, sorry for going to a traditional banking lens, but when you think about kind of worst case scenario analysis, and you're looking at a company that, you know, you're talking about that sweetheart that's crushing it on the top line, they've got a sweet product, they're really well received in the market. Um, and then they come to you and they say, hey, we want to add debt to this. And you're like, sure, that's fuel to this fire. Um, what happens to that debt if you get into that sideways position where, you know, you're still moving along, you're just not moving along at a clip that's going to bring in enough financing to you know, recapitalize the debt or to give the company kind of a fresh new set of legs. Um, that's a tough situation. That's a situation, um, quite frankly, that, that we're trying to make sure that we understand what the controls around the business are. Because when you hit that, that kind of less than stellar growth uh, trajectory, you're going to need to be able to reduce costs in a way that makes sense and have inputs that can still result in you being able to at least get to cash flow positive. And so that's when, you know, <clears throat> Operational expertise comes into play. 
um, and, and really when the business model gets tested on how efficient it can be. When it when with the pandemic, how it, I, I feel like the pandemic threw a lot of things, it kind of flipped a lot of stuff upside down, you know, like things that that were once surefire bets were suddenly really questionable. And then certain things were, well, I don't know, certain things became trendy really quick. Did it, you talk about like evaluating the company, like how much scrambling and changes and just general everything did you see not just, I mean, I don't mean just SVB, but just investment and everything in general, how did all of that change potential valuations? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think uh, every new conversation I have, I learn a little bit something more uh, about how people were affected by the pandemic uh, and how business valuations were affected by it. I think you've got a few different classes of, of kind of outcomes for companies. There are those that you talked about um, that, you know, they were selling something to consumers that they wanted to get at home and they destroyed their 2020 numbers. Uh, and so they're trying to take advantage of that high growth and talk through how that's sustainable for the future. And that's been great for them. Um, there's obviously companies that really struggled through and didn't have the capitalization um, that are in tough positions uh, right now. And really what they're trying to do is show kind of their case for rebounding in 2021. Um, and then there's kind of this middle swath of companies. And I think there's, you know, this would probably fall in the majority of these were folks that said, hey, our typical sales trends didn't happen. Um, and really what we did was preserve our capital. And now we basically have you know, delayed what our timeline would be for funding. Um, and we really have an execution year in front of us or execution six months to start the fundraising in Q2 or Q3. Yeah, and that was a common, you know, that's common advice when major events hit is to have a knee jerk and Cap, capital preservation, because you don't know when the next round is coming. You don't know what the future holds. It was, I mean, 13 months ago when I was having this exact same conversation when I was nearly stuck in the Philippines uh, when COVID hit. And, you know, I created a series of, of you know, Sequoia, uh, a well-known venture firm, is, is pretty known for, at this point, for sending out these harbinger type letters, you know, and they had, they've had them in the past. I think they had one called like the Black Swan that was really famous. And they put one out about COVID that was basically like, hey, you know, during times like what we think could occur is you don't, the ca capital markets freeze up, like evaluation methods change, like risk factors are unknown and all of that it could possibly relate to just a, a freeze in the venture market and, and, and just marketplace. And, you know, that that's exactly what happened. You know, I, I have, we have a couple, know a couple people that were expecting to close rounds in March April yeah, didn't happen. Some of them got moved a little further down and one of them just literally just closed now, like this month. So you look at that, like, how are you getting through the next 13 months? And I mean, did we, and we don't have to name names or anything, but I'm sure that there were quite a few players out there, just meaning companies that just died on the vine. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, that's an unfortunate reality that happened there um, where, you know, if you were a company that was low on, on cash with a model that required a, a lot of cash uh, in order just to keep things moving forward, um, you, you lost that momentum and potentially uh, 
failed in that moment um, and, and don't exist today. I, I think, you know, for companies on this other side now that still exist and are thinking, oh no, you know, maybe, you know, I've missed an opportunity for growth here, or I've missed out on these sales metrics, et cetera, or this is going to affect my fundraising. I think the silver linings are, you know, Zoom fundraising is now a reality. And so seeing an investor a day uh, in person and getting in your car, getting on a plane is no longer necessary. It's still great. And I think that developing those relationships so that you can have, you know, that personal interaction, particularly at the early stage helps, but you can book out a day full of pitching your product and your company and your people uh, and get a lot more looks and a lot more shots on goal so that you can, you know, survive and grow this great idea that you had that might've been sheltered for six or nine or, you know, 12 months. Um, another thing that's come out of this that I think benefits companies, particularly in places like I'm in Denver and, you know, obviously Kansas city and some of these States that didn't get as much love as these coastal markets got was the VCs had to look elsewhere for viable businesses and guess who's great at running efficient companies. Some of these businesses that weren't so used to being able to get these, you know, large checks just cut at the drop of a hat because they could drive to Sand Hill Road. Uh, they had to show some efficient metrics. And so there's some really good trends about, you know, buys coming towards different markets and uh, people valuing different perspectives from, a, you know, how your business is growing is efficient growth, uh, a healthier way to approach these type of models, et cetera. So I think all in all, there were some really negative things that happened, but you can take away the fact that the ease of fundraising, that's probably the wrong way to put it, but the ability to get in front of people to fundraise and the access to investors has increased. And so hopefully helps people on the back end. Well, there were definitely businesses that ben that benefited. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that anytime before we hit record, I was going on about how I've become old. Um, and with that comes some interesting experience because you, I don't know, I went through the dot-com bubble. I went through the housing crisis now have gone through a pandemic. And the, I, I think that a lot of this, a lot of stuff, um, and, and please don't hold this against me if this affected you, but I think that there are some Darwinistic qualities to tumultuous things and market, you know, market changes and market conditions. And, um, and, you know, sometimes that, that, you know, like I said, it's, it, it can be survival of the fittest in, in many ways. And, you know, it doesn't mean that it, it's, it's good or bad, but these, a lot of things occur. And, and I think a lot of people emerge from anything that is, I don't know, that's that's historic in the timeline and if you make it through like one of the most important things that was said to me last year that really stuck with me was like look you just need to try to survive in advance and you will find few, fewer competitors and maybe more opportunities around you so okay so we've been talking about different ways to establish an investment valuation if you want even more opinions on that check out the uh, uh how to start a tech uh, company series that Matt Watson and I are doing that's live every Wednesdays in 2021 on the Startup Hustle podcast. Many of those episodes are also brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank, much like today. Now, we're going to do the Founders Freestyle here in a moment. But before we get to that, I want to once again remind everyone that this episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank. Go to svb.com. There's a link in the show notes, or you could just go type svb com in the browser. It's only three keystrokes, four, five, seven total keystrokes. You see that math, Ryan? That's that's what thinking on your toes looks like right there, buddy. Uh, so 
I say that uh, I end my episodes with what we call the founders freestyle. And I know that you aren't per se a founder. So I will shape that in a certain way for you. But I say my episodes, I'm not the only host of Startup Hustle. Make sure to listen to Lauren and Andrew's episodes. Andrew has an episode every Tuesday. It's about e-commerce and Amazon. Lauren is the founder of Innovate Her here in Kansas City. And she talks about all kinds of stuff on Thursdays. So, and if that isn't enough for you, head over to YouTube, go to the search bar, type in Startup Hustle, check out our new web series about entrepreneurship. It, it's fun. We think you'll like it. Don't watch it with your kids, though, because we give you a realistic look on what it's like to be an entrepreneur, which sometimes means we swear. Now, as a, <laughs> so back to the show here, Ryan, what's the best advice that you could give a startup founder when it comes to um, business valuations or raising capital in general? Uh, tap your community. Make sure that you're working with your your advisors and your peers, and you're part of you know the the local group of folks that are like minded, so that you can share those ideas and those experiences and learn from other people's mistakes. Yeah, um, I I agree. I agree, and I, I'll I'll parlay off that. Take that same community and ask for some warm intros. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I mean, that's just the way. I mean, that's that's why you have a network. That's why they say that you're you know, your network is an asset. Um, and I think if you're going to raise, raise money and seek evaluation, go talk to people that actually write checks. Nothing drives me crazier than someone that's, that wants an investment. And they're like, yeah, but my uncle Larry said, this should be a $3 million valuation. And my response to that is always cool. Is he writing you a check at that valuation? Because if he's not, it's just another opinion. And I get that a lot. And it's sometimes it, it comes in the form of someone that has just received a term sheet or an offer. And they're like, yeah, but so-and-so is telling me my valuation should be a lot higher. Same question. Is that person writing you a check? Because that check does set your market rate. But there's a lot of people out there and there's a lot of information. We're in a golden age of information. Ask Google. Look it up. There's a lot of information you can, I mean, it's everywhere, man, everywhere from Crunchbase to your Google News feed. whatever it is that you want to figure out is probably at this point in an episode of the Startup Hustle podcast as well. So Ryan, thanks for joining me. I know you're going to come back down the road and uh, we're going to, we're going to talk a little more about investment, funding, raising capital, banking, and all of that. So thanks again to you. And thanks again to SVB. I'll catch up with you soon. Thank you so much for the time. Have a good one. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.